Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Lincoln Blevins, Stanford University's Executive Director of Sustainability and Energy Management, and Jerry Hamilton, Stanford's Director of Facilities Energy Management. We talked about Stanford's Smart Buildings Program, including why technology matters so much, the technology they've implemented to cut approximately 90% of carbon emissions, and what's next on their roadmap. This is a fascinating look at how buildings technology started as an energy management play, is evolving into an O&M or operations and maintenance play and will soon evolve into a core business focus that supports the resiliency of the campus mission itself. Without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Stanford University. Hello, Lincoln and Jerry. Welcome to the show. Lincoln, let's start with you. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Great to be here. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. I'm Lincoln Blevins. I am the executive director for sustainability and energy management at Stanford University, covering energy and sustainability, obviously, but also water and building energy management. I've uh, been in the uh, industry, mostly the energy industry, for uh, almost 30 years, uh, all over the world and all over the value chain, most recently at Burbank Water and Power down here in Southern California, and now up at Stanford in Northern California. And just finding, finding it to be an amazing journey of, of transformation over the last few decades and really looking forward to the next decade where I think we're going to see the, the most transformation of all. Awesome. And all right, so Jerry, we'll go to you. Can you introduce yourself? And it sounds like you work for Lincoln. Is that is that true? That's right, James. Uh, Jerry Hamilton. I'm the director of facilities energy management at, at Stanford. I've got an interesting crew here. We run some very complex energy programs. We manage retrofits. We manage some complex incentive mechanisms. We do consulting for new construction and retrofit projects. We also include our facilities automation center. And that's where I spend a lot of time having the opportunity to be involved with new technology, smarter building applications. And of course, these applications save energy. So they go, they go hand in hand. So coming at this from a couple different angles. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer by background. So I've been at Stanford 11 years and uh, did energy consulting before that. But it's been a fun ride. Can't believe how fast 11 years has gone by. But I've uh, been blessed to do some pretty fun projects here at Stanford. Cool. And, and so, so, Lincoln, your background is interesting. You said you're in the energy industry. So what, what, what were you doing and, and what were the, maybe the couple jobs that kind of led into working on the, the building side? Uh, sure. I, I started out in the, the wild west of independent power back in the 90s when everybody and their, and their mother was flying all over the world, mostly to emerging market countries to do power plant development. And I was part of that, part of that army doing deals from East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Central America, South America, North Africa, Middle East, all over the, all over the place. A lot of frequent wow. flyers, a lot of jet lag, a lot of great deals. But then from there, to working in energy efficiency projects and doing some mergers and acquisitions, some renewable energy projects over here in the US, as well as 
most recently being at a vertically integrated utility doing doing the power side, but also very involved in the water side as well. And that was uh, Burbank Water and Power, which is a, a big utility down here with some very, very interesting customers, Warner Brothers, Disney, Nickelodeon, the biggest Ikea in North America, and obviously very customers with very, very significant energy needs, but also very, very significant sophistication around their energy needs. And that's what got me onto that side of the meter, so to speak. And so now, uh, especially through the work that Jerry's team does up at Stanford, there's an opportunity to really take that to infinity and beyond so to speak, in terms of applying technologies for the most, some of the most extraordinary customers, Nobel Prize winning uh, physicists, for example, yeah. um, that, that the world has to offer. So we're really, really playing in the big leagues, which is a lot of fun. Cool. And you've been at Stanford how long? Uh, it is a, almost nine months. So okay. I'm still in a lot of ways drinking from the fire hose. Uh, yeah, I have sure. inherited a fantastic team of which Jerry is is one of my rock stars. So it's been really exciting. Amazing. All right, Jerry, how about you? So you were in energy consulting. How did you make, and you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago at Realcom at, at dinner, make the transition from that, you know, consulting side into the, the building owner world. And what's that been like? Well, I spent a few years doing classic third-party implementation program design, program implementation, M&V, got to work with some pretty big utilities around the country. It was fun. It was exciting, a lot of work. I kind of refer to it as my graduate program. A lot of work, drinking from the fire hose. After a while, it became apparent that I'd like to work for an owner. Um, I hadn't done that before. My prior work entailed traditional uh, combustion work, ironically. I was in the industrial uh, in boiler world, power plant world. And I'd learned a bit about automation. Didn't appreciate it at the time, but had to do a lot of automation to support these complex industrial processes. And about 12 years ago, Stanford decided they wanted to create this position I have, which was a unique combination of energy management, program management, and automation. And I just so happened to be the right unicorn at the right place at, at the right time and who wouldn't want to come to work at Stanford. And at the time, Stanford was proceeding with some facilities upgrade work that everybody else was only writing about. You know, we would write reports for large government-funded entities about the potential of electrification, for example. And here, Stanford was actually doing it. And this was, you know, over 12 years ago, the plans were coming together. I got on board a little over 11, and it's been a great ride. Cool. Well, I mean, the focus of today, what I'd like to get into is what, what I call smart building strategy, but really that encompasses a lot of different things, right? Really, it's, it's why is technology important, right? Is the, kind of the first, first place to sort of jump in. So, so Lincoln, let's, let's start with you. From, from Stanford's standpoint, why is smart building technology important and, and who is it important to? Well, it's, it's, it's a really, I'd like to jump off of from where, what Jerry was talking about in terms of actually doing it, actually walking the walk in addition to talking the talk. Stanford has a, is really, it, it's really a small city in a lot of regards, full service city 
we have a electric about 60 megawatts of electrical supply we have a what is now a almost 600 million dollar thermal energy facility that was built about six years ago that is really the beating heart of the campus with hot water and chilled water and then this incredible distribution network for hot water and chilled water as well as electricity itself to power the campus and then you have hundreds of buildings that are laboratories, their classrooms, their offices, their dormitories, their you name it, all sorts of different end uses. And so you've got an incredible diversity of what kind of energy people need and what they need it for. And the, I, you know, I mentioned the Nobel Prizes winners in physics before, you know, you have a, a lot of variety too in the the urgency and the, the, the need for extraordinary reliability and resilience in that supply. And so when we get down to the building level, that's where the rubber hits the road for all of this. And that's where the whole picture comes together, not only providing hot water, chilled water, electricity, a little bit of steam, but providing it in ways that, you know, often in a building you'll have a physics lab and the next door down you'll have a classroom and the next door down you'll have an office. Those are three very, very different needs within the same building and uh, very different needs for reliability, very different needs in the case of a curtailment, for example. So <clears throat> we need an incredible sophistication at the building level, but we also need to do this in a way that is not just reliable, but also makes sense from an affordability standpoint and more and more makes sense from a sustainability standpoint. And so how do we not only use the thermal energy and the electric energy efficiently, but how do we then go create a, a unified value chain where we're going all the way up back to the supply, the source, and creating a sustainable solution that meets our needs. And so we have power purchase agreements with solar farms out in the in the rural areas and then you know coming in to the campus to the to the thermal plant and then how do we match that up in the buildings that Jerry's responsible for in a way that meets those needs and is really I think ultimately transparent if at a minimum transparent to the occupant occupants but at a maximum really empowers the occupants to be as sustainable as they can possibly be while getting what they need to get done from a research and teaching and administration standpoint. So it's a really exciting walk the walk and full value chain sort of solution. And of course, the world keeps changing. Definitions of sustainability keep changing. The electrical grid keeps changing. So not only do we have to be very, very good in the present day, which we are, but always looking over the horizon and always positioning ourselves to be successful in the next year, the next five years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. So, and you know, when you're the last thing you want is a phone call from that Nobel Prize winner saying, My physics experiment just turned, that is not the one you want. So we're yeah. working in a in a very, very wonderfully high pressure environment to get things absolutely right all the time. Um, totally. And so whenever I hear you, I'm hearing all of these different 
stakeholders, right? So I think you've mentioned three or four. You probably haven't mentioned there's probably like construction projects going on here and there uh, as well on campus. So there's probably another set uh, of potential stakeholders there. But but I, but I heard students. I heard Jerry's team, right? So maybe just like the can maybe encompass that and like the O and M staff, right? Their world. There's probably sustainability stakeholders, right, as well. I heard professors, right? That's an important <laughs> stakeholder group and potentially maybe billing departments like for the energy they consume, that kind of thing. So so I guess I'm hearing a lot of different potential ways that technology could be used. Am I, am I on track there? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a situation where the needs are so varied within the institution and the buildings are so varied. You know, we have the buildings that, if you look at our backgrounds, you know, the original pieces of the campus that go back decades, maybe a century. I should know this, I don't. Um, <laughs> but you also have some of the most advanced buildings in the world and everything in between. And yet, all of that technology has to work in a way that is transparent to the occupants or, you know, even better, empowering to the occupants across that building stock. And, you, you know, you make a great point. When I first joined Stanford a few months ago, I asked, you know, if construction and demolition ever stops. And the short <laughs> answer is no. Uh, always something going up. There's always something coming down. And yet everything, the whole Stanford train has to keep moving seamlessly through all of that. Got it. Anything to add there, Jerry? Energy efficiency has opened a lot of doors for projects and technology, and that's no exception at Stanford. Stanford's had formal energy programs since the early 90s, and so the low-hanging fruit was gone even when I showed up here. So every project that we do now almost invariably entails automation improvements, and probably the majority of projects now, the big ones that are saving you know, 10, 20, 30% per building are exclusively automation. So energy is still a benefit there. But the thing that we're focusing on right now, my team and collaboration with our operation and maintenance colleagues across campus is operation and maintenance. How can technology materially improve their lives, save them money? And it's, it's, it's tough because we can measure a saved kilowatt hour pretty quickly or a saved therm or a saved ton hour. Impacts on maintenance, that takes a much longer time. You know, consumables are one thing, but when you're trying to manage staff, and staff morale is a big thing too. We've dealt with the challenge of applying smarts, getting some ideas, creating work orders, and those work orders bearing staff who already feel underappreciated and, and overworked, yeah. right? So we have to get smart about how we use smarts to, to help the operation and maintenance side. To the extent now that, and I think this is, this is a sign of the times, you know, everybody thinks about energy now. And if you can operate and maintain your buildings properly, you're going to get the energy savings for free. So how do we really get folks paying attention to the O&M? Make sure that those folks realize, you know, this is a university program. This is a university opportunity. It's not just Lincoln. It's not just Jerry trying to push energy anymore, bringing in that, that team. So we're, we're doing what we can on that front. The other thing we've noticed is making data available. Data access is one of the key tenets of a data governance strategy. And we're learning about these things as, as we go. And people often talk about students, can they see your data or do they want this data? Well, that's one way to put it, but 
what does it mean if we really want to support research? That means this data has to be readily available, and this data has to be clean and understandable, and it has to be normalized. So there's a lot of work that has to happen when you make data available in a practical manner to students, to researchers, to stakeholders. And that stakeholder pool continues to grow because you never know who can benefit from our data, whether it's energy data, whether it's building uh, HVAC system data, lighting system data. And we learn as we go. So we try to be open-minded and go beyond the way things were maybe a decade plus ago, which is, well, it's my system. Why do you need the data? You don't have to operate this, right? You're not responsible for this, but that uh, prevents new ideas, right? And that's really the door the technology is opening is the, the unpredicted. What are we gonna get out of this that we never thought we would in the first place? Yeah, that's that, that piece of it, I feel like is, isn't talked about as much. So like when I was at NREL, we National Renewable Energy Laboratory is kind of like a campus in that way. You never know, probably even more so, right? The, the amount of researchers on that campus that care about how buildings use energy is probably the most in the world potentially. And so the ability to like, you just don't know what they're going to do with the data. You just have to share it. And, and every university I've ever worked in has been that same way. You never know when a student is gonna come in and be like, I'd like to do this experiment or, or a researcher or a graduate, you know, that kind of thing. So the, to me, when I think about universities specifically, right, there's the broader smart buildings industry and then there's universities and, and what are the use cases within that? There's the student experience, right? There's providing a, a you know, productive, safe, comfortable, healthy, you know, experience but then there's also the, the yeah the enablement piece that i think is important for you guys too how, how do you accomplish that technology wise no need to talk about specific vendors but you know specifically when you think about that data in a bis or a metering system it's not necessarily designed to do what you just described jerry one of the things that i'm i'm most proud of my team about is the pragmatic approach of building controls and managing that data and the subsequent analytics platforms that, that, that we use is really working backwards. Instead of trying to get the best killer app, the flashiest tool, start with where's this data coming from and how do we ensure that this data is, is right and, and being effective. So we started the, the building management system. We try to have good solid sequence of operations. We're under a lot of pressure not to over-specify. You know, we don't want our projects to be so expensive that the university can't afford to build them into our new construction projects. So to be as, as practical as possible, but where we need good instrumentation, where we need good data, we, you know, we, we push for it and where we can live with a little bit less, we, we accept that. But we find it's very important to get that data normalized and set up at the very beginning in that, in the source system, because then it flows easily into whatever tool you're using to manage the data and that data base, uh, data lake, whatever you want to call your system, it has to then be able to share that data someplace else. And it starts at the beginning. What we found is that you can buy as many apps and tools as you want, but every one of them has to be integrated. And there's a cost associated with that. And there's the, the vendor's labor costs, there's your support labor's costs, there's your IT partner's labor costs. And sometimes those costs are hidden and you don't see them. Uh, sometimes there's opportunity costs because you can only onboard one tool at a time. So really streamlining how that data flows. And fortunately, just within the last 12 months, we've had a couple of new construction projects go through where we used uh, fault detection diagnostic software to do the commissioning. 
And it was great to see that the data points were set up in the automation system. They automatically fed into the fault detection diagnostic platform. The commissioning agent could plug right into that and run all of their tests and needs. And things just went really smooth, really quickly. We saw tremendous cost savings. In a way, it was almost too good to be true. But the fact that we've probably spent a decade building up to that point, I I think. I was just going to say. (laughs) And so then this then leads into, you know, ongoing commissioning. You know, these tools don't go away. And so then we've got an ongoing commissioning team. It's about a year old. We're still norm- normalizing how those people get along, but using the, the, the technology to deliver specific results, whether it be, I want to get this building commissioned as soon as possible, or we want to be able to have metrics for across our operating team to say definitively, yeah, these are our priority buildings. These are the priority issues in the buildings. These are the priority work orders that we're going to release this week. These are the priorities that we're going to get done this week. And you don't always get to pick your favorite, but you have a framework that you can justify. So you may have an energy management system. You may have an HVAC fault detection diagnostic system. You may have some fancy tools on top of your computerized maintenance management system, or you just may have an individual who just knows a lot, right? And then there's always individuals on campus who know all the historical anecdotes. And they're important too. I, you know, I don't know how to put those into the database just yet, but you've got to capture that because only when the team's working together are we going to knock these things out? So we've had some good success there. But again, it's almost technology agnostic. It's just getting the, the right information to the right people so they can work well together. Fascinating. Yeah, I'd like to, I want to go back to your uh, point that you made earlier and then tie in what Jerry just said. We're really at, at a point in our world, but specifically at Stanford, where climate and therefore energy has really moved from the edge of the conversation to the to the center of the conversation. And so there is a hunger for knowledge and a hunger for creating new knowledge, which of course means in a lot of cases turning data into insight that I'm not sure we're ready yet, you know, ready for yet. The the tools that we have are really operationally based tools. That's That's how the world has been set up for the last hundred years. But what we're finding, and again, especially in an academic environment, is that we're we're having a lot more people wanting a lot more data, a lot more access to a lot more data uh, because this is the, the thing now. And for all the right reasons, this is the thing now. But the legacy systems aren't set up to support everybody's research project, everybody's desire to know. And so I think one of our biggest challenges over time is to realize that we're really on the front end of taking, of, of, of opening, I kind of picture, you know, French doors or big barn doors or something into our world and allowing people to look in and allowing people to to do things from a research perspective with data that isn't necessarily set up to be useful to them or to be delivered to them in an efficient and reliable and replicatable way. So I think that's, that's a big part of what we're seeing. We're just seeing the beginning of that wave. We, we haven't seen quite the tsunami yet, I don't think, but we're just seeing the beginning of that wave of a lot of people getting very curious about our world. And yet, and our world isn't quite yet set up to allow them the visibility to satisfy their curiosity. 
So I think that is going to be a really interesting thing, especially at Stanford, where the level of intellectual horsepower and the level of curiosity is as high as it is anywhere in the world. And of course, sustainability and climate change are our front and center. So totally. it's a really exciting time. This reminds me of a conversation I was having last week. It was with a group of software developers. That's one of my clients. And they were looking at trying to uh, provide some sort of decision-making tool for someone that is able to look at indoor air quality and energy and look at trade-offs between the two, which is a, is a, that's a great question to ask. And it's a great uh, attempt at, you know, providing value to operations folks. But what I had to explain to them was like, if you just look at say indoor air quality is measured in the zone and then energy metering happening across all these different systems and metering in all these different ways. And like, and you guys have the campus and central plant aspect of this as well, added on to that. The, the actual work required in any given building to, to compare those two for a given room is so difficult. Is, is that sort of like what you mean as far as the questions being asked? We just don't have the data to support them at this point? I, I think that's I think that's definitely part of it, but I think I think the the world is asking for information that that we don't just don't quite generate yet. But I think there the world is also asking for it in a format that we're just not used to providing. I think the world is asking for information about the world of energy and especially at the more granular levels like the building level. Mm-hmm. you know, in, in ways that they, they can understand and consume. And the fact is we've never, we, that's never really been part of our, our MO before. Yeah. We've been talking to ourselves and experts talking to experts and within this energy world bubble, all of a sudden we have to talk to everybody else too. Yeah. And they don't necessarily have the training or the technical skill to understand what they're seeing completely or even to access what they want to see. And that is that to me is an emerging challenge because to the extent that we put up our, our what do you call it in Star Trek, our, our force fields against that, to the extent that we, we bolt the door against that, I think that that's gonna be very counterproductive in terms of our, our credibility and our ability to, to participate in the solutions. That's very, very broad brush, but that's a that's a perspective that I see developing over the next few years. We simply can't keep the barn doors closed anymore. We've got to open them up and but we've also got to get in there and make sure that everything's ready for public consumption. Fascinating. So let's let's I want to zoom back out a little bit to overall energy goals. Where is Stanford? What's their target? As a campus, what are you tra- guys trying to hit and by what? Right now, we're, we're targeted at, at net zero by 2050. That's where we are right now. I think that's where a lot of institutions and corporates and countries are mm-hmm. right now. There isn't a whole lot of definition around that yet. Okay. Uh, that's something that, that I feel that we need to, we really need to start defining. But I think it's good to have that macro endpoint, and then we can both work backwards and get more granular as we go. 
And I think there are, there are two big components to, that, to, to actually meeting that. One, of course, is behavior, which is not quite the subject of this discussion, but is, is, is absolutely crucial. But then there's the technology. And I think there's going to be, or, you know, again, we're right at the, right at the beginning of a very big you know, tsunami wave of technology that is going to help us meet that. Cool. Yeah, so I guess my follow-up question there was, what's the sort of roadmap to get there? But it sounds like maybe that's, you're still in the sort of defining phase. Yeah, phase. To, to a certain extent, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout out to our latest sustainability year review, which is on the Stanford website. Beautiful piece of work from our Office of Sustainability. Talks a lot about what we're doing from a renewable energy standpoint. We're going to be 100% renewable energy by, well, depending on supply chain issues, by the middle of next year at, at the latest. But also looking at fleet electrification, about electric vehicle chargers, about, you know, as Jerry, Jerry mentioned, you know, energy efficiency, a lot of the low-hanging fruit is not there anymore. How do we take that to the next step? So there's a, there's a lot. And then when we look at, you know, scope one and scope two emissions, We've got those pretty well sorted, but then there's this giant and incredibly impactful world of scope three emissions that Stanford, like the rest of the planet, is, is really figuring out in real time. How do we, what are they? How do we measure them? How do we do something about them? How does our behavior need to change and or our technology need to change in order to bring those down to sustainable levels? So yeah, it's a lot of insomnia right now, uh, trying to figure this stuff out. And, but, you know, you look at the folks on Jerry's team, absolutely at the cutting edge of, of trying to make this happen at the building level. That's an important point. So when Stanford has a net zero by 2050 goal, they mean scope one, two, and three. Whereas when we say, and usually in the buildings world, we're talking about scope one and two, right? When we say net zero building, usually we're talking about drawing the boundary around, you know, one and two. So Jerry, is that how you're thinking about this? How, how do you think about what needs to happen from an energy and, you know, operation standpoint to get to that target? Really fortunate. We've already electrified the, you know, the thermal processes at our central energy facility. So for our main campus, wow. 90 plus percent of our heating energy is already coming from electricity for our buildings. Is that heat recovery chillers or how does that? Yes, we have the heat recovery chillers that are moving waste heat from our chilled water loop into uh, a new, relatively new, since 2015, uh, low temperature heating hot water loop that goes to the buildings. And that, that's great. That was a major achievement. The central energy facility came online in 2015. So from a steam distribution system and steam receiving buildings to low temperature hot water. But like anything, it's what have you done for me lately? And so we want to go to that that next step. 2015, that was a long time ago. <laughs> informal program that we call the last 10% because we eliminated 90% of our main campus scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions. So how do we get that last 10%, which means we've got to come up with means to electrify periphery buildings that aren't tied into our central plant system. Things that you know, going back 10 years ago, were too expensive to convert. Well, let's look at them again. How has technology changed? How can technology be used to reduce costs? Taking a fresh look at what is the cost of carbon, uh, for example. Interestingly, 
there's less pressure on me now for energy efficiency on the demand side and more pressure on making the buildings smarter. For example, our central energy facility has the first of its kind optimization engine running on it. And it's constantly forecasting out hourly dispatch models over a seven day uh, forward looking horizon and it's updating every 15 minutes. So it can optimize for load, it can optimize for cost and a number of other variables. And you can take equipment out of service and it'll recalculate. We need to get the buildings to that same level of smartness such that I have a model for every building, what is its hourly electric chilled water, hot water demand gonna be. And on top of that, I need to model what my demand side management measures are. So it's kind of a combination of energy temporary energy efficiency, temporary demand response. But when you think demand response, the industry has been electric. We're looking beyond just instantaneous electric load is if I make an impact to the HVAC system at the building level, how's that gonna impact the total campus? Our central energy facility has significant amount of thermal energy storage, both for hot water and for, for chilled water. So if I save something on what I think is peak, peak cooling, it doesn't affect anything at the central plant because the chillers aren't running because we're running off of storage. So suddenly we have to model over a 24, 48 hour period. And what's the impact of the building over that period? What's the impact of the central plant? So my demand side management work got a whole lot more complicated. Yeah. I've got job security here. Uh, we look at things like return temperature coming from the buildings. How well are the buildings utilizing the chilled water and the hot water? Are the buildings drawing out as much energy as possible? That improves operation of the campus as a whole, even though the absolute BTUs being consumed doesn't change. And if we factor in these indoor air quality concerns that you alluded to, James, about are there situations where we're going to have to increase ventilation? And are we going to have to increase airflow? And yes, we probably will. And we'll deploy technology to assess that and to you know, measure what is the appropriate amount and when. And I'm fine with that because that technology is also going to help us identify where we're currently overventilating. And I think those opportunities to reduce ventilation will greatly exceed the areas where we need some more. Also, as I mentioned before, I want this smart discussion to get beyond energy. So if my operations team partners, if my resiliency program management team says, we've got a real issue in XYZ buildings, we need some more airflow, or we're concerned about particulate matter because of the location of the air inlet. We want to fix that. And we don't want energy to be perceived as a reason not to do the right thing, because in the end, we manage these buildings well, this campus is going to use less energy. Uh, and obviously, anything that's still burning natural gas on campus, it's going to get special attention, <laughs> right? So okay. um, we know you like this old gas hot water heater. What if we put in a new electric hot water heater and some new technology? It's going to be better than it was before on any, in any account, right? So sometimes you got to put a little sweetener in there and technology helps, right? You couldn't nice. monitor this old tank, but now you can monitor this one. That's Got cool. it. So I want to circle back on what you said. You're in the last 10%. What was the path to get here from a technology standpoint to the fact where you've decarbonized to 90% scope one and two? 
what were the different technologies that had to happen to, to well, if, we, if, we, if we look over about a 10-year period we went after you know the big energy consumers starting okay. even before i was here and we called them the the dirty dozen so we did a study of the top 12 energy consuming buildings This started all the way back in 2004 and we developed a capital program to go after the the, the biggest energy consuming buildings and those 24 bill, those 12 turned into 24. We got some more funding. And over about a 15 year period, we knocked out 24 to 30 large capital projects, which were seeing 20 to 30% energy savings per project and even more. And so that definitely moved the needle. We implemented new construction standards that are pretty common, folks do that. So we've got our energy use per square foot trending down into areas that we were comfortable with. Then we looked at this heat recovery possibility. What if we converted the campus from steam and really address our energy use from a supply side, which is a radical way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. What if we change the way we are procuring, manipulating, supplying energy to our buildings with the benefit of saving a lot of energy and saving a lot of carbon? So that was the big emphasis from about 2010 through 2015. With, in the meantime, we were also electrifying our fluid. We were looking at other means to reduce carbon, you know, strictly measuring carbon, not uh, just energy. So a combination of these factors have gotten us to where we are today. The nice thing uh, that happened in parallel with electrifying our central plant is that our ability to procure uh, renewable energy through power purchase agreements, and highly affordable prices came to fruition much faster than we thought. We knew that we wanted to be able to procure an electric portfolio. I mean, we knew at some point in the future, the cost would come down. We just know it would come down this quick. And so that's why within a few months, the next this next calendar year, we should be able to say that all of our electric purchases for our campus are renewable. And I didn't see that happening 10 years ago, right? I had several of my staff like, what are we going to do to you know, get rid of this fossil fuel power on campus. We were so frustrated. A lot of folks, the wind was out of their sails and it, it's happened. We're here. So what do we do next? And so we do have to deal with the other scope two emissions in the, in the, in the scope three. We have some more fleet work to do, but a lot of periphery buildings. And that's what we look at. When we say the last 10%, it's like, okay, now we can go after the smaller things. Stanford owns property uh, around North America and even you know, a handful of facilities around the Bay Area that people don't know about. And so they're in our portfolio as well. And what do, what do we do there? Interestingly, just a few years ago, we built a new administrative campus in Redwood City. And it's a pretty good sized campus. And it has its own, we call it the mini central energy hub. It's, it's built like the one on main campus with heat recovery chillers. And it works very well there as well. So how do we apply these lessons from main campus to our other facilities? And we are quite serious about sharing this knowledge with other institutions, both higher ed, any, anyone who really operates a campus type environment and how can they use it? And it's not dependent upon uh, our mild Mediterranean climate here. It, it works in the cold climates, it works in the hot climates because there's always some energy that can be salvaged. So if I can repeat that back to you, and this, this journey matches universities that I've had the pleasure of working with as well. So it's, it's essentially metering to understand which buildings use how much energy to find the energy hogs, um, benchmarking, right? Identifying those top energy hogs, doing 
pretty well deep retrofits, right? To bring them down to an acceptable target value, starting with the end loads, right? So I think that's a misconception that a lot of people have that I've had this argument <laughs> a lot about before. You start with the end loads and, and I'll, I'll take this to my death. You, you start with the end loads before looking at the plant. Now that you've optimized your end loads, now you go back to the plant and you say, okay, now that we've curtailed and minimized the loads out in the space, what are our actual plant needs? And then what you guys have done is I think taken it a step further and said, okay, well, how can we actually decarbonize that plant source as well, which is fascinating. And, and if I put this entire conversation so far together, it sounds like the next phase is kind of rolling into making sure you have controls everywhere, digitizing everything, getting the right sensors in place, and then kind of moving into the maintenance phase. You're talking about the peripheral buildings, the last 10% as well. But for the, the 90, the, the, the rest of the buildings, it sounds like it's you know moving into FDD, you said ongoing commissioning, right? Getting the tools in the hands of all the operators and the O&M staff, really getting them on board to keep the buildings where they should be at. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yes, the technology will be able to squeeze some more energy savings out. And we do need to see cost savings in other areas. So we wanna get that technology applied there. The latest buzzword is resiliency. And how do we make our spaces mm. more resilient at the building level, at the room level? So that's giving us uh, a mission to look at. And that includes air quality, includes anything related to safety and occupant experience. So we're going to have some fun there. What do you mean by resiliency and how does it relate to things like air quality? more metrics to quantify what resilience is in, in buildings. You know, what does it mean to have a healthy space for our occupants? Now, obviously particulate matter and VOC and anything else we could think to measure is important, but there aren't many practitioners who can tell you what a yeah. real threshold should be. There, there's, you know, the EPA publishes levels, but as we know from operating buildings, you know, metrics are dynamic, they, they, they fluctuate, and even temperature, there's no such thing as a temperature in a room, right? There's a temperature that the thermostat reads, there's a temperature over by the window, there's a temperature it feels like sitting next to the window in the afternoon versus the morning. And we've just learned how to work with this. And I think we're gonna have the same experience when it comes to measuring VOC and particulate matter. And there could be a small corner in a room that has an unusually high reading, but the room in general could be quite low. I'm just guessing because we, we don't have experience with this, but it's an area that we're gonna to have to explore. And the sooner we can apply technology in a cost-effective manner to help us, the better we'll be. We don't wanna scare people or spook people, but at the same time, if there's some way to quantify that this room is above average in terms of environmental air quality hazards. We want to know that, but we want to know it. We don't want to just be chasing numbers that come off a sensor that we implied that uh, we installed that Im implies something's wrong, but we don't know if something's wrong. And I want to I want to take that a little bit more broadly. You know, it's a lot of people don't realize or they don't quite put the. the if you're not in the Bay Area, you don't really quite realize that we are really a living lab. We call ourselves a living lab at Stanford for a lot of reasons, but being in the Bay Area makes us a living lab of resili resiliency in so many different ways. You know, we, we've always had earthquakes. In fact, if you look at the fault lines running through the 
area that we're in, it's it's basically like you know the pinstripes on the Yankee uniforms. But so you've always had the earthquakes, but you've also got wildfires, you've got droughts, you've got sea level rise. There is you know we're we are at the end of say the natural gas infrastructure and the petroleum infrastructure for the country being up against the coast. So we have a pretty much, you know, I don't know about zombie attack, but pretty much every resiliency risk that you have is present in our area. And so when you think about resiliency from a more traditional kind of earthquake-centered viewpoint, or you look at everything that's coming at us with climate change, those are very, very real to us. Those are, those are right there in our neighborhood. And that's going to have to, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to work right now to look at our buildings and say, how do we keep these resilient, whether it is air quality from airborne pathogens or, or you know, like COVID to, to wildfire smoke, what's going to happen with sea level rise at our various facilities, for example, you know, some of which like Redwood City are very close to sea level and very close to the ocean. What do we do about things like electrical supply when we're, you know, on not only on the coast, but on a peninsula. So we're really, I think we're, you know, at the same time that we're facing a lot of these risks, we're also in a great uh, we're, we're very well situated to take a very hard look at these risks and hopefully mitigate them and not just mitigate them for ourselves, but mitigate them in a way that helps the rest of the world mitigate their own risks. So, but, you know, when you think about it, I didn't realize this until I had really spent some time up there, but we really are in, in a laboratory of, of, of resilience. Almost, literally almost everything you can think of is, is a clear and present danger in the Bay Area. Yeah, I didn't think about that either. There's also the brownouts on the grid as well. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. Yeah, you guys are dealing with everything. <laughs> wow. Um, so I think this is a good segue actually into the, the business case. So, so can we go back to before Lincoln was around, Jerry, 10 years ago or whatever, you guys started down this path. It sounds like this path has been going on for a long time, but maybe we've got to draw the line somewhere. How has the business case been made up until today in the past to get to where you are today? From an energy perspective, we've always worked on a rule of thumb that we could justify investing energy funds. And we operate like a utility on campus. So we have, you can say we've got ratepayer funds. So we have always justified contributing up to five times the equivalent annual energy cost savings as upfront money to a project. And okay. that's pretty significant. That's that's quite a bit of money, but we deem that it's it's worth it to the university. It's worth it to our ratepayers for the benefit that it provides. 
So many of our early projects were paid for using basically utility money. That made it pretty easy. We, we had the funds, we could then fund, fund the projects. Uh, we've also managed programs, you could call them more like mass market programs where different business entities around the campus who procure energy from us could approach us with a project. I want to retrofit a laser in a lab, right? This is a 20 year old laser and guess what the new ones use? You know, a 10th of the power. Or let's say I have an ultra low temperature freezer in one of my laboratories. I want to replace it with the new one that's, you know, four times more efficient. So these sort of mass markets, so we, we drift the small as well as the large lighting retrofits come in all different sizes and we want to make sure we don't miss the small ones there. So kind of that five-year payback threshold. Well, things got interesting once we got through the big buildings, right? Because any significant retrofit project, you've got to hire contractors and consultants and there's soft costs and there's internal costs. And suddenly five-year payback just wasn't quite enough to pay for everything. So within the past five years, I would say, we've developed a real great working relationship with our capital renewal teams, the okay. folks who are planning on the 20, 30 year horizon for the buildings. You know, when are the roofs gonna get replaced? And when are the HVAC and control systems due for renewal? And so we work with them and we are still contributing energy funds, but it's, it's really to help steer which projects get a priority. And what we found is we've got more projects than we can handle right now that have the joint benefit of big energy savings, make the building smarter, address a renewal need in, in the HVAC and automation system. So we're continuing to plug along. We, we, we aren't in a situation right now, at least knock on wood, that uh, we're not pursuing good, uh, good projects. And I think that was kind of what folks always have talked about doing, you know, combining maintenance and, and energy cost dollars. And it, it's working for us and it's working well. We haven't monetized. We've obviously implied that it's a priority for our last 10% buildings, but we haven't been pushed real hard on what an appropriate level to spend is. We don't know yet how to put a dollar value to resiliency, but it's very important. So there's a lot of premiums that we've identified that are justified. We just don't have those metrics yet, James, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. That's one of the things that we, we do. I'm very proud of the energy programs we work. We know what the total life cycle costs are for the measures. They're very cost effective. And I think the university likes to be fiscally pragmatic. And I think we will continue to do so. But I think in the coming years, we will be in a situation where we can publish a material cost for carbon and we can put some tangible costs to safety and, and risk avoidance, things like that. So I think that's gonna be in the coming years and that'll be fun. Well, so how, how have you made the transition from energy only ROIs to energy and operational cost ROIs? How, how have you put numbers to, to that operational side of things? Well, we're still trying to get some good numbers there. I, I, don't, I don't have the magic uh, formula right now, uh -huh. other than we've stepped back a little bit from energy. Instead of energy pushing, 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 it's like, well, it looks like we've got there's probably a half dozen buildings that would be good candidates to feed into our retrofit pipeline that aren't currently getting attention. This is what the energy value is for each of those. And then we step back and this allows some, the, for example, our uh, preventive maintenance program manager, he can step up and say, well, you know, this one's really been a pain. I want to address okay. that one. So it's kind of subjective. Or someone in our environmental health and safety team, she can say, you know what, 
we've been studying this building. We've got some really cons big concerns about X, Y, and Z because we really can't see what's going on in that space. Oh, mm. Okay, well, that's fine too. Uh, so really letting others voice their interests and their, and their concerns. And if it's worth it to them, they can you know, contribute their funds. So definitely an emerging area to uh, say, you know, what, what is the cost per unit safety improvement? I don't know, but I think we're gonna get there. You know, what's the cost per unit of perceived maintenance savings, right? If we retrofit a building and we think we'll have to spend fewer hours per year doing reactive calls to zone level HVAC systems, how do we verify that? That we <laughs> right. haven't figured out, right? We, we know what the baseline is. And, and how do we know what it's going to be in the future? The other thing is when we put new technology in, you find things that you didn't see before. And does the technology get dinged for that? Is it the technology's fault that now you can see problems that you didn't see before? And that's my analogy. It's kind of like I said, well, do you want to know? Do you want to see the mice in your pantry at home? Or do you rather not know they're there? Because I'll show them okay. to you, but then imagine the stress you're going to have once you know they're there, because what are you going to do about it? Right, um, right. Same sort of sort of thing we've moved beyond that sometimes I'm, I'm scared to show folks in senior management our fault detection diagnostic tools yeah. because when you look at it there's thousands of faults <laughs> you know, that are there they're, they're currently in fault and if you haven't worked with it if you're not a practitioner you would panic and think this is absolute failure we look at it more like the faults themselves are the metric how many faults per building per year do you have, right? Or which faults are reoccurring? And that becomes data in and of itself, just like kilowatt hours per year, you know, active faults on average per month. Oh, we went from 500 to 300. All right, this building's doing great. And you just got to make sure if somebody looks at it the first time, they don't say, why do you have 300 faults? You guys are terrible. Totally. I want to circle back on that real quick, but Lincoln, I wanted to hit you with with the net zero by 2050, with the resilience focus, with we got to get the students back into on campus, right? We got to tell them about their indoor air quality. How do, how do you see the business case changing over time and, and maybe changing today versus that, what Jerry just described on how it's been done and being done right now? I, I think the, the jury is still out on a big part of it. I, I look at the mission of the university and I see, you know, research and teaching. I, my impression is, and I use that word very um, intentionally, my impression is that the world of research hasn't changed that much, that it's still human beings interacting, maybe not coming to labs, but interacting with labs in, in large part. And so that physical, the physical presence on, with physical infrastructure is still somewhat important. I may be proved wrong about that, and I want to leave that possibility wide open. I think where it, where it really gets interesting is the, the education component of it, the teaching component of it. My impression is that the Stanford and the world is really at the very, very beginning of figuring out what a, a post-COVID Zoom-inclusive yeah. education world looks like. I actually think, I and mean, you look at the great dislocations in history, whether it be war or disease or technological innovation, 
you know, over the last couple thousand years, it takes a while for these things to work their, their way through the system. And I feel like both with the post-pandemic or hopefully nearly post-pandemic world that we live in, but also this incredible technology that we're using right now to create, to, to interact with each other visually <clears throat> over extraordinary distances in real time is, I think that's gonna to have to work its way through the system. I think the world of work obviously is changing in ways that we wouldn't necessarily have predicted and is gonna to continue to change in ways that we still can't predict. And I think that's the same thing for teaching. And then for us, we then look at our, our university environment, which has been growing, but more or less under the same assumptions. Yeah. For a century, those assumptions are changing. And so what does that start looking like? How does that evolve? Is there a new normal or is, or is stasis now just impossible and it's just constant transformation? What does that mean for buildings? What does that mean for the way the buildings are used? How often they're used? How, what does that mean for cost allocation and thus what you can do, what you want to do with buildings? Where do we, I, I, I would love for, to have some answers on that. But I think the, the smartest answer is a very curious version of we don't know. And we just have to be ready. I look back at, somebody asked me what the size of the energy storage market would be a couple of days ago. And I said, it's going to be huge. And she said, well, you've got to have a number. And I said, yeah, a lot of people have numbers in the same way that, you know, back in 1910, people had numbers about how big the automo automobile industry would be. Or in 1980, we had ideas about how big the PC industry would be. Everybody's wrong. We just know it's going to be huge. And mm -hmm. that's how I look at this transformation that we're undergoing is that we simply don't know. We have to embrace the fact that we don't know. And, but we do know that it's going to be huge, a huge transformation. So when that, when we, when we bring that back to reality for what we're doing at Stanford and specifically what we're doing in buildings, I think the time right now is it's absolutely crucial to be, to have as many eyes and ears out into the marketplace as possible in terms of what's possible, as many eyes and ears tuned towards our customers to see what they need and what they think their needs are going forward. And ultimately it's less about the technology and more about the human beings. And that's where we're so blessed and I'll give a shout out to Jerry, even though I'll embarrass him. Having people like Jerry and his staff, it's really the people who are going to solve the solve all of this with technology. And so having the best team, empowering the best team, equipping the best team, that's how we jumped this chasm. It's with people, people using technology, but people first and foremost. So I, I'll get off my soapbox, but that's... I, I think we are at the, at the front end of an extraordinary change, and it is the people who will figure this out using technology as opposed to the other way around. Fascinating. All right, let's end this, not so fast, but I want to do two kind of like rapid fire rounds. So one is looking forward, maybe what are the top three to five 
things you're working on right now and specifically technologies you're, you're trying to implement either a new tech or a new technology that you're just trying to get the people side right that's okay we we, we, we understand that flashy things are only as cool as the operational processes that they're implemented into um, so what are the top three to five and then we'll do another rapid fire round after that but what, what what's what's the top technologies that you're thinking about right now from my viewpoint, we're looking at a couple of, of, of really interesting challenges. One is how do we maintain electric reliability and resilience from the grid level all the way down to the building level in a decarbonized world? We hmm. can't rely on, I don't think, on, on backup generators at the campus level. I think we have to look at a world where our, the little diesel gen, gen, gen sets at the buildings are going to have to start to go away. So, but how do we maintain reliability and resilience beyond those technologies, beyond carbon-based technologies? That's a huge challenge. I think the other part of that, though, is a recognition, especially in California, that the world of reliability itself and resilience itself is going to change. And therefore, at the building level, we need to figure out how to, you know, I described a building, very common building, where you've got an office and then a physics lab and then a classroom. How do we organize our energy, our crucial energy supplies such that if there is a curtailment or brownout, say, on the California grid, we can keep the lab going while shutting down the office and the classroom. So how do we get not just super granular in terms of understanding what's going on in those buildings, which we're in those, those, those physical rooms, those spaces that we talked a lot about today, but also how do we understand and then automate responses to external stimuli like brownouts, such that we can maintain the, the mission of the university under as, as broad a range of circumstances as possible. So those are two things that, that, that I'm thinking about from a broader perspective. There's so many things. Number one is data management in general. Really like to see the, the piloting and testing work we're doing related to auto, automatic data error recognition and automatic data correction. And data error meaning you lose an instrument for a while or the IT comms go down or it goes out of calibration or whatever. There's a dozen yeah. different things that could happen. And then automatic correction. And that's gonna make it so much easier for the analytics tools to operate easily on top of that, require less human interaction. Also, it's gonna make it much easier to share the data so that folks who get it can use the data. If they don't have to clean the data, if they can trust the data. So that's a big area. The other area that I'd like to make some progress is really making sense out of Internet of Things devices. You know, what does mm. that mean to have devices that we can deploy en masse in buildings, have a dedicated network that they can plug into? You know, what some some flavor of wireless? I, I don't know, right? And work with our IT partners to figure out what that is. I want to see a future where we can rapidly deploy smart devices as our occupants want them, right? Based mm. on their ability to absorb that information. I'm a customer as well. Our HVAC team's a customer as well. And create a culture where if I want to see an instrument in a building, it doesn't have to go through the HVAC system or the lighting system or the metering system. It can if it adds value, but if it doesn't add value, then 
that just makes it harder for the people who run the HVAC system. And it just makes it harder for the folks who manage the data connection to that HVAC system, which then creates bottlenecks and can lead to resentment among staff, right? It's like, how come these HVAC people can't give me this data? They must not like me. And that's not the case. It's just not their job. So how can Internet of Things really release some people from some burdens, right? And then share some data. But at the same time, people got to let go. So that's a real exciting one. And then the other area that we're investing effort right now is, I guess you could call it system integration, but not just like HVAC and light. We're talking ERP system integration and CMMS and space management and, and planning. How can we share data across these systems to make meaningful impacts? And I think COVID's provided a little insight here is what if we all look at the room level? What does that room mean to us? If we manage HVAC, I've got a VAV box and an air handler and utilities. I got a hierarchy. But if I'm responsible for the, the health of occupants in that building, I need to know, you know, who are they? Do they have higher risk? Or what are they higher risk of? When are they there? What are the risks there? Is there hazardous equipment in that space? What does the operating schedule in that space look like? And what I'm quite How critical is, is it? Like, like, like uh, Lincoln said, yeah. Is it a lab? Yeah. Is it an office? Is it, yeah. Is it a lab next to the office? And I think we have more in common than, than we know. And so we've talked a lot about it. it's all about the people. And I think this circle of people has got to get bigger and so that we can see that this common overlap. And then, yeah, HVAC, we can give a little information here and we can pull a little information out of the, the call center if we want to know the history of calls that come out of there. We're gonna, we can talk to the space planning people to figure out where their, where their bottlenecks are. And we can deploy some Internet of Things devices that can monitor you know, space traffic. And maybe I just want to know, is it occupied or not with a high level of certainty? Other folks want to know, okay, how many people walk through there? When did they walk through there? Same time? Did they go to the same area of that room? So just what are these next small basic use cases that we can build upon? So yeah, data management, IoT devices, and getting really, really smart about our individual spaces. And I think the technology exists. And of course, that's going to open up BIM modeling and, you know, oh, yeah. sounds like a standard. systems and better yeah. So whatever you want to call them, that, that promised functionality that you get from those is, is where we want to go next. Yeah, there's like a, it seems like there's a Stanford ontology project coming. Um, yes, yes. yes. Well, I think, I think this audience would like to see you, you, you piggyback and contribute on to one of the existing ones, but maybe you'll have your own at some point as well. Cool. That's fascinating. All right. Final rapid fire round so we can end on time here. Let's talk about three lessons. And so you, you, between the two of you, you get three, <laughs> three lessons that other universities slash building owners can learn from. And I think I, I want to pick one that I, I can call on you for Jerry, which is you're talking about the operations, the O&M, sort of digitizing those processes. Can you sort of pick out a lessons learned, uh, lesson learned there that other people can learn from? The best use cases are so simple that people are even afraid to mention them. We've been at this for multiple years, and I think people are just embarrassed to say what they really want, and maybe they won't even tell it to themselves. So I will give okay. you... Two examples of conversation I had last Friday with our preventive maintenance program manager, and we were scratching our heads trying to think of the next great analytics thing. 
And he says, I got to go because I got to go check out this deionized water system problem in this lab. I go, well, tell me about that. And we start talking about it. And we said, how come we don't have smarts on these DI water systems? It sounds like that's a common headache. Well, I don't know. I just never really thought about it. We just, we deal with it because somebody calls and complains and we go out and look at it, right? And we had a similar conversation a few weeks before related to our air compressors. And some of these have a little bit of remote telemetry, but the point being is you've really got to peel the layers back. If, if you want to find something really, really smart, you're wasting your time until you address the things that are really, really not smart uh, because that's what's right. going to impact the people. And again, I'm not going after the DI water systems because they're not saving energy, right? Maybe they could save some water. And so they never were on my radar screen. And But if you free that guy up, maybe he can then spend his time. Well, you're darn right. And if I can free up a few plumbers or HVAC techs, guess what? They may start paying more attention to my return temperature optimization yep. needs. So yeah, you got to make sure that you're peeling the onion back as far as you can on the maintenance side because there's stuff there that is not going to be obvious even after years of looking yeah that so that's why we so i teach a course on smart buildings technology and we don't get to new technology until four weeks into the course so we teach you know basically a lot of this conversation maps pretty well to it but we start with people's workflows right you that's where you look like, what are you doing today? And where are the opportunities to improve upon that? Um, all right, Lincoln, what, what, what do you think? What, what are your lessons learned or, or one lessons learned? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, piggyback off of Jerry. You know, if you unpack what he just said, you've got two very smart, very knowledgeable, very deeply committed people talking to each other hmm. and solving problems. And that, to me, is what gets lost in a lot of this, you know, it comes back to the people, you know, the, the technology is enabling for the people, but unless you have people like Jerry and people like Jerry's team working and committed to these problems and, and interacting with each other in an environment of psychological safety where Jerry mm -hmm. can say, well, do you have a sensor on that deionized water equipment? Well, gosh, no. Let me think about that. You you have the you have that interaction. You have the these incredibly high quality people, and you have the safety to not only ask what seem like stupid questions, but also be able to ask, as Jerry was saying, the questions that are so obvious that maybe people don't even think to ask them. That's that to me is a huge lesson learned in in this whole process. Absolutely. The other lesson learned is. Smart tech that develops in silos stalls out really quick. So mm, the people need to get together because I may have an analytic system works great for what I need. I'm done. Thank you very much. See you later. I'm going to go back to what I do. If everybody did that, there is going to reach a point where these things become mutually exclusive. This brings up your IT partners as well. At the end of the day, there's somebody in IT that's got to support all these things. And maybe there's multiple branches of IT, but it rolls up at some point. And at some point, people then realize we're burning a bunch of hours trying to support 10 different things that all call themselves analytics, right? Or all call themselves a dashboard. Now, you don't all need to have the exact same tool, but you got to make sure these tools aren't fighting one another. So another reason, maybe you're a techie, but you better get together with some people because your techies next door are probably working on very similar things. Maybe they call it tomato, you call it tomato. 
But if you want to have some legs to what you're doing, make sure you're not conflicting and make sure you're not overburdening a shared resource. And you might not know what that shared resource is, but they'll be aware of you. So absolutely develop your tech in silos. Yeah. And I feel like most organizations get to that point where they're like, okay, we have too many siloed initiatives. Let's take a step back. What's our architecture look like here that, that enables this long-term? Which is what and to tap onto that is if you've got a good infrastructure, you can create all the APIs you want to call that, right? So I, you could have a limitless number of dashboards all going after the same data. Mm-hmm. So it, again, it's the arc. How, how are you approaching this? If you want customized dashboards, that's fine, but let's not make this one person in the middle have to do 10 things. Let them have to do one thing that can support all 10. Yeah, customize it sounds like point. a fruitful partnership with the IT folks. Well, cool. It's a great place to end up. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Jerry, you were a last minute addition to the, to the conversation. So thanks for coming on and joining Lincoln and I. It's great to have these two different perspectives. So thank you so much. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart buildings industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.